Hi, I'm Lisa Moore, one of the pastors here at GT Church in Victoria, BC. Welcome to our podcast. All of the content you'll find here is meant to point you to Jesus and to encourage you in your journey wherever you're at. Enjoy the message. Good morning, Coastline Church. How's it going, everyone? So good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, if you're joining us even for the first time, you're here for the summer. We're so thankful that you're here. I believe that God has something for each one of us today. So lean into that. But so glad that you're with us today. We are in our Acts series, and we, we're pretty deep into it now. But we're at the part where we're following the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Last week, Pastor Lisa was in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, and she was talking about how the gospel bears fruit. We've been following Paul. This is the same man who had a miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And we're coming to the end of the book of Acts. We're going through chapters 21 to 24 today to outline Paul's return to a place called Jerusalem. There's a lot to cover in these chapters. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all of these, like the whole thing, right? But we'll go through some little parts here. I want to camp on a couple of these passages from chapters 21 to 24 If you're taking notes today, the title of my message is Compelled to Tell the Story. Compelled to Tell the Story. Now, I've been married for a while now. It's been almost 10 years in October. Isn't that wild? My wife might say it feels like 30, you know? (laughs) But while we were on our honeymoon, we went to a place called Honolulu and as young lovers did, we decided that we, we didn't have the money to rent a car, so we decided we wanted to see more of the island, so we took what was called a Circle Island tour. So we went to the, the hotel desk and bought this tour and <clears throat> didn't realize till we got to the tour bus that we were the youngest people there within like two or three decades. <laughs> it was like a senior's uh, tour bus, and through all the jokes from the tour, the, the driver, he would be talking, you know, he'd be like, and this is where Tom Selleck was, and we'd be like, who's that guy, you know, and uh, he, every joke he ended with, hey, boomers, and we'd be like, no, we don't, I don't know what you're talking about, so we went to the macadamia nut farm, and we went to the place where they filmed Jurassic Park, and I ate, like, all-you-can-eat ribs there. Come on, that's, like, my, my love language. Thank you, America, for all-you-can-eat ribs. And we ended up um, at a place, the Dole Plantation, and if you've, that's where they grow pineapples, and I've never seen where a pineapple grew before. One thing that they have there is called Dole Whip. Has anyone been able to experience this? Yeah, a few people. It is a gift from God. It is pineapple soft serve. And with this Dole Whip, uh, my wife Kirsten and I had a sharp disagreement on how much Dole Whip we should order. I was thinking that I would get my own Dole Whip, but I was wrong. (laughs) I was sorely wrong. We had to share. We had to share the Dole Whip, and that made me quite grumpy, so I decided I'm not going to share with you. You eat it all by yourself. And we got back to the tour bus, and Kirsten, my wife, had this really cute pineapple that they put the Dole Whip in, plastic pineapple, and she's eating it. And she said to me, you know, Chris, I know you're kind of angry right now, but you really have to try this Dole Whip. It's so good. And don't let your anger, let, let it cloud how good this is. And I said, I'm not trying it. <laughs> and that was the first time I was wrong in our marriage. I should have tried it. I only bring up the Circle Island tour to say that 
you know, on a Circle Island tour, there's no uh, getting away off the path that they're going. You know, it's, there's several stops. They're very timed. Even at the Dole Plantation, they gave you like exactly 35 minutes. And then they're like, we're rolling off on the bus without you if you don't get on the bus. And this is kind of what we're seeing happening in Paul's life. He's on like an island tour going through the Mediterranean led by the Spirit. And I believe today that we have something to learn from his traveling in the book of Acts. There's something here for each one of you today. The Spirit is speaking. And through these chapters and Acts, I want to share two lessons that are really inspired by the life of Paul. So can we jump right in today? Do I have that permission? Can we go in here into chapter 21? The first lesson we learn from Paul is that followers of Christ are Spirit-led. Followers of Jesus Christ are spirit-led. Beginning in chapter 1, we find Paul and his crew traveling through modern-day Turkey to the coast of Lebanon and then down the coast from port to port into a place called Caesarea, which is in Israel, and then into Jerusalem. It seems that Paul caught you know, a ride on a cargo ship, and we pick up the story in Acts chapter 21. If you have your Bible, you can pull it out now. We're going to go into chapter 21, verse 1. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you didn't bring yours. Here we go. After we torn ourselves away from them, and this is the people from the last chapter, the Ephesian elders, we'll talk about them in a minute, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on, to, on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Verse 4, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt and prayed. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. So let's stop here for a second. As I said, Paul is here traveling by boat, making his way to Jerusalem in verse 4. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, that's the important part, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now we know that Paul is a missionary, he was a church planter, and we know that he's a follower of Jesus Christ. He's an amazing example of what it means to be a Spirit-led Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet, in verse 4, we see that through the Spirit, these well-meaning disciples urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So we can ask the question, like I did, if Paul is a man led by the Spirit, what's happening here? Why would the disciples entire try to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and how do they do this through the Spirit? Have you ever had it happen when you feel like God is leading you to something, and then the people around you start to tell you that, there's a different story? Who do you believe when you hear the Spirit speaking? Or do you believe the other person who's speaking to you? Does it mean that one person is right and one person is wrong? Well, I think in this case, what happened was the Spirit of God gave these well-meaning disciples in Tyre a sense that Paul was headed to hardship in Jerusalem. But they seemed to add their own concern and love for Paul to the message of the Spirit. Did you know that well-meaning, loving Christians, spirit-filled Christians can get it wrong sometimes? It's true, I know. So what's going on here? 
I want us to go back to, back one chapter to Acts 20, verse 22, and we'll kind of get a glimpse of the dynamic that Paul is working with here. This is Paul speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, the same people that we read of at the start of chapter 21, the ones he tore himself away from. Now, if you read chapter 20 in full, you'll get this idea, the sense that Paul doesn't ever think he's going to be back to see these people again, which starts to frighten them. In what he thinks may be his final speech to them, he says this, Acts 20, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. See, we're talking about a man here who is sold out to the cause of Christ. I find Paul's language here so interesting that he was compelled by the Spirit. The word compelled in the Greek language here gives a sense of being bound, obligated, obligated or even forced. He knew that his next step was to get to Jerusalem you know, he was on that Circle Island tour. He couldn't get off the bus. He was compelled, bound by his calling. And at every stop along the road, he kept getting warnings from the Spirit about prison and hardships to face. And if Paul's life is an example of someone being led by the Spirit, I want to ask you these two questions. When was the last time you were compelled by the Spirit? How often do you find direction from the Holy Spirit in your day-to-day walk with him? Because what we see here in Acts 20 is that Paul lived his entire life, his whole life, led by the Spirit. Remember what he says in verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, in our Western context, I don't know if we have a great understanding of what it means to surrender our whole lives to Jesus Christ. Our culture teaches us that everything we need is within us, right? Our culture says that the things that we have and the things that we do and the things that we are are what bring our worth. Our culture pushes us to pursue relationships and promotions and fame and security because we're worth it because we need it, and even because we deserve it. And my pastoral concern for us today is that we would consider that there's more to life than being comfortable. There's more to life than consuming Christianity or consuming Sunday content. There's more to life than just being fulfilled by things. And in chapter 20, verse 24, Paul is saying, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Like, okay, Paul, step back a second here, man. Thanks for making us all look bad. He's like that fitness friend that we all have. I know you have one. You know, they're always zero to 100. Like, you know about CrossFit because they tell you about CrossFit. They're always finding more ways to be, like, extremely fit and finding ways to make you look like a slouch. I mean, (laughs) it's not hard for someone to do that to me. But, you know, I know for me, like, I spent a great deal of my life trying to find fulfillment in things like education or my work and even my family. I spent countless hours seeking to find and build my worth. 
And as I study this passage, I realized that earlier on in my faith, I really had no context for what it meant when Paul said that his life was worthless. But what I do know is that there's a cost to following Jesus Christ. In my own life, I've had family members disagree with my calling as a pastor and doubt the call that was on my life and Kirsten's life for us to move to Victoria. And that was so difficult, so hard. But what I see in this passage is that life isn't just about being comfortable or having that perfect plan. Paul's not saying that his life was without meaning. He's not saying that he was unfulfilled because if you study Paul and his life more in depth, you would find out that he was perfectly content in this situation. In every situation, he was secure in his faith. Here Paul is saying that his mission His calling, his purpose and task from God are greater than his own life. So hear me out today, friends. You don't have to be a pastor or a missionary to be called by God. That's good news. As Christians, we all have the same baseline call from God, just like Paul, to fulfill the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Notice that the task of the Christian life is others-focused, It isn't just about me. Sunday isn't just about me. It's not about what I can get from it. And if the band didn't play my favorite songs, it was a bad Sunday. That's not what church is about. You know what? Your faith can be an encouragement to you. But your faith is actually meant to be a beacon of hope to a dying world. Your faith testifies to the good news of God's grace. Because if he can save you, if he can forgive you and me, and if he can speak to you and me, imagine how he can speak to and forgive and be with the people out there as well. What if we stopped caring so much about what we have and where we're headed in our lives and we started to say, Spirit of God, where do you want me to go? Where are you leading me, God? What do you want me to do? When was the last time that you were compelled by the Spirit? Being compelled by the Spirit could sound a bit intimidating, but I can tell you that being led by the Spirit is one of the keys to being a true follower of Jesus Christ. It means that we surrender control of our lives to the one who knows best. We see it in Paul. He knew that hardships in prison were coming. He knew that uncertainty was ahead, but he had the courage to keep pressing forward because he knew who he was being led by. He surrendered his whole life to God. You know, someone or something is leading your life. Your task is to ask yourself, is it God's spirit leading my life or is it someone or something else? And if it's not God, is it something else? Is it your ambition maybe that's leading you? Maybe you're even led by fear in your life or are you allowing a sense, of, a sense of apathy to lead you even? Because I can tell you that it's something, but ultimately we need to strive to be spirit-led people. Okay, let's head back to chapter 21 now. As a recap where we are, Paul is in Tyre and the disciples there tell him not to go up to Jerusalem. Remember, as Paul said, in every city the spirit warns him that the, he's heading towards hardship. He then leaves Tyre to a place called Ptolemais. He stays there for a day. Then he heads to Caesarea and stays at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven, the Bible says. 
The seven refers to seven deacons who were chosen by the disciples in Acts chapter 6 to assist the disciples as they continued the work of ministry and the church. So in verse 9, it says that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Verse 10, after we'd been there for a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Okay, so first the disciples entire. And now a prophet arrives where Paul is in Caesarea and prophesies that he'll be bound and put into captivity, kind of like an Old Testament prophecy kind of thing happening here. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So at this, now all of Paul's companions are starting to get really worried, including Luke, the doctor, the one who is writing this very account in the book of Acts. It's easy to look on the outside and just assume that Paul must be crazy or super stubborn or something. What looked on the outside like warnings to not go to Jerusalem only served to convince Paul more and more that he was on the right track because he was led by the Spirit. These warnings actually confirmed where he was supposed to go. They confirmed what the Spirit had already told him. Look at how he responds in verse 13. Paul then answers, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, Let the Lord's will be done. Paul was so certain so attentive to the Spirit's leading that not even his companions could dissuade him. He was ready to give his life for Christ, to be in prison or even die for him. And some of you here today will choose to follow Christ and the people around you may call you crazy. People will warn you against following Christ because it's not always a comfortable life. And following Christ isn't always this linear path and it can be scary for people who don't know him but you have to lean into what God has spoken to you because well-meaning, kind, intelligent, loving people may try to dissuade you from the call that God has put on your life. And it's up to you to be in step with the Spirit so that you're not dissuaded. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I am not saying that there's no place for godly counsel in your life. We need mentors and pastors and good friends to give us advice. But what we need more is to follow the Spirit of God and what he's saying to us. We need to get to a place where we can better hear and understand where the Spirit is leading us. That's good, friends. Can I get an amen? Speak to us, Spirit of God. Paul, we can see, cultivated a life of being led by the Spirit. He lived a life of continual surrender to God. And we can do the same thing because we actually follow the same God that Paul followed. Back to verse 14, Paul's companions start to lean in and they say, the Lord's will be done. You know, I think some people say things like this when they're convinced that you're wrong. They think that if you're headed, you know, you're headed to your demise, let the Lord deal with you. And against all odds, they hope that the Lord's will will prevail. These kinds of people kind of act as if the Lord's will is some kind of Hail Mary pass or a safety net. But we have to understand that this is the path that Paul had to be on. And what we learn from Paul and his companions is that spirit-led people let the Lord's will be done. Spirit-led people let the Lord's will be done. 
I think that we should try to get to the place where the Lord's will in a situation is the minimum, not the fallback plan. Can I say that again? In our lives, let the Lord's will be the minimum, not a fallback plan. We seek out the Lord's will first and then we act. And that's the first lesson that we learn from Paul's life. That followers of Christ are spirit-led. They're compelled. And being led by the spirit means that we have to surrender our plans and purposes and goals and even our aspirations back to God and allow him to have the final say on where we go. The second lesson we learn from Paul's life is that followers of Christ have a story to tell. Followers of Christ have a story to tell. When Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem, he receives a warm welcome at the home of a believer named Nason, Acts 21, 17. And just like when it starts to look for Paul, like things are in the clear, some of Paul's opponents spot him in the temple. He's going about his business, and they begin to stir up the crowd, throwing a lot of false accusations around, saying that Paul has brought Greeks or Gentiles into the temple. I think today our times lack a bit of context to the severity of these accusations levied against Paul. The crowd was filled with religious and cultural Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews were not allowed into certain areas of the temple. And if Gentiles went into these certain areas in the temple, it would be punishable by death. So what they're really doing is they're saying Paul has gone against the cultural and religious norms of the day, the standards of that day. And the whole city gets riled up against him. And they actually start to beat him to death. Imagine a group of people against you trying to beat you to death. That'd be so scary. <laughs> the Roman troops in the city realize what's happening and they run to see what's happening. Verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him, this is Paul, ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Notice that it was the Roman soldiers who effectively saved Paul's life here. This is the same group of people that just a few years ago crucified Jesus. And they take Paul to the barracks just to keep the crowd at bay where all the soldiers are to protect him. I think this is a good point to mention that in this situation, Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, his arrest, the coming trials, look a lot like Jesus's arrest and trials. Paul would have been well acquainted with Jesus's story so I can't help but wonder if Paul could see how the Spirit was leading him. He must have wondered if his fate was going to be the same as Jesus's. The Spirit of God keep telling Paul that, he, that hardship and prison were coming. And think about it. Jesus and Paul, both innocent of accusations and charges laid against, against them. Both had crowds trying to murder them. Both arrested by the Romans and put to trial by Jewish religious leaders trying to get the ruling government to put them to the death. But both of them were led by the Spirit. And both of them tr completely trusted God with the outcome of their lives. Thankfully for Paul, instead of being killed in this instance, Paul is saved by the Roman guards. You know what he does right after that? 
He asks the commander if he can address the crowd. That's gutsy. The crowd tries to kill you and you say, you know what, hey, I got to address them. Got to set things straight. He's given permission and he begins to share about how he began his career by persecuting and killing Christians. How he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was struck with blindness. That's in Acts chapter 9. He tells them how once he got to Damascus, a Christ follower named Ananias sought him out to bring him a message from God and heal him with a divine miracle for his eyes. And it was this moment that Paul received his call to share the good news. But since Paul had been persecuting Christians in the area, the Lord sent him far away from Jerusalem to minister to the Gentiles. And this is why the Jews are mad at him. Now he's back in Jerusalem, and what starts as a warm welcome turns into years of him being in captivity. And over the next two chapters, chapter 22 to 24, Paul undergoes two separate trials. One trial where the Romans try to try him at the hands of the Sanhedrin. That's those being the religious officials from the Jews. But they couldn't find him guilty of anything worth punishment. So the Romans then bring him to the Roman governor, Felix, back in Caesarea. He's tried again by the religious leaders with Felix presiding, and again, not found guilty of anything worth punishing. Instead, he's put under house arrest. Here's what happens next. Acts 24, verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Verse 27 is where it gets really wild. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Imagine that. All I can think about when I read Paul's story is that there's really a cost to following Jesus. Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem and submit himself to whatever plan the Lord had for him. And he wasn't worried about the outcome because he was compelled. He went to Jerusalem with a story to tell. He had the good news of God's grace to share and he accepted his fate. He endured beatings and hardship and imprisonment. And the same thing is true for our lives. We may not be enduring beatings or hardship and imprisonment, but as followers of Christ, we all have a story to tell. Did you know that? If you're a follower of Christ today, your testimony, your story is for telling. You carry the good news of God's grace. You and I may have come to a relationship with Christ in a different way, but his activity in our lives is exactly the same. And whether you grew up in a Christian home and started a relationship with Jesus as a kid, or if you found Jesus after a long history of partying and drugs, your testimony is powerful. It's powerful because of what Jesus has done in your life. It's powerful because nobody on earth can transform your life like Jesus can. It's powerful because it speaks to hope in even the darkest of situations. We can't be ashamed to share what Christ has done in our lives. It's too good to keep to ourselves. Just like pineapple Dole Whip. 
You know, it's why Baptism Sundays at Coastline are one of my favorite Sundays at Coastline. It's a Sunday where we celebrate the stories and next steps of believers who are deciding to give their lives to Christ forever. Maybe you need help writing your testimony, your story. You've never really thought about it. Would you come and see one, one of us, a pastor or someone on staff or a ministry leader? We want to help you. Because it doesn't matter if your story is simple or complex. The important thing is that Jesus has transformed your life and he's changed you from the inside out. And we begin to see this transformation in Paul's life. He was led by the Spirit to Jerusalem into hardships and trials in order that he might share his story and make an impact on the people there. And as a result of his trip to Jerusalem, he actually spent many years in prison and under house arrest. You know, on the outside, you could look at Paul's life and say that he's a failure. Maybe he shouldn't have allowed himself to be captured. But you know what? God had big plans for him. Even in the worst of times, God had a plan. And while Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote this to the church. Get this, Philippians 2, verse 12. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Everything that has happened in your life has happened to you in order that you may be able to spread the good news. I don't know about you, but I want to strive to live in the same way as Paul that everything that would happen to me would help to spread good news. We've learned today that followers of Christ are spirit-led. We can all strive for the will of God to be realized in our lives, and we work to surrender our hopes and dreams and aspirations to God. But we've also learned that as followers of Christ, we have a story to tell. Jesus Christ has saved us. He's forgiven our sins, and he's given us a testimony to be able to lead people towards him. And in this way, we are compelled to tell the story of Jesus in our lives. God is speaking to you today. Would you let the Spirit of God lead you today? Would you open your heart and your mind to hear what he's speaking to you today? All across this place, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to pray for you. And maybe you're saying today, Chris, I want you to pray that the Spirit of God would lead me. All I'm going to ask you to do is, would you open your hands in a posture to receive? And I want to pray for you. No one's looking around. Maybe you're going through hardship or trials or you have a need or you have, have a need for healing or provision. Maybe you want to start a relationship for Christ or take a next step. Would you just open your hands? I want to pray for you too. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are here right now, that your spirit leads us. Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit? Would you lead and guide us into the way everlasting? 
Lord, I thank you for the boldness of my friends here who opened their hands. God, would you fill them with your spirit? Where there was a need in their life, God, where they had empty hands, would you fill them? God, we believe you can do this today. God, would you be healing people in their bodies, even in this moment right now? In Jesus' name, would you bring your healing? Lord Jesus, we look to you in hardships and in victory. In every moment, we look to you. And we pray, Spirit, lead us. Spirit, guide us. Spirit, have your way in and through us that we may be witnesses of your good news to the world, to the people around us, to our families, to our friends, to whomever, whomever we come into contact with. We need you, Holy Spirit. God, would you fill us? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us determination to follow you? And we know that just as you led Paul and kept Paul and protected Paul, you will also be with us until the very end of the age. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and we're going to sing a song in response that the Holy Spirit would continue to overflow us with his spirit, giving us what we need to continue on. Let's sing. <laughs>